Well, some of my favorite movies are those movies that I get to go home and watch and enjoy somebody vicariously blowing somebody else up. Enjoy vicariously somebody coming in and taking out the bad guys. We were watching some clips that uh, the staff was helping me with for the theme of this message, Mission Impossible. And we have an impossible mission if it's not by the power of God and not by His stripes. And they were telling me that Tom Cruise does all of his stunts. And I'm like, you're kidding. So they were showing me one where he's climbing up the mountain there in Yosemite. I've been there. I was just like, wow. I said, he's doing that? He's hanging? And suddenly I felt very little. He's hanging there over space. I felt weak, Pastor Rick. And I went home and went into the garage. I got something. And I just saw how long I could hang on. I'm no Tom Cruise. (laughs) I'm no Tom Cruise at all. And yet the mission that Tom Cruise has or any other person that would live such a dangerous, edgy lifestyle, it pales in significance or risk compared to the mission that God has called you and I to. As a matter of fact, Jesus prayed this prayer not long before that Pastor Corey read to you, and he read it well with the music, but he prayed this prayer on his way to the cross. He prayed this prayer on his way to suffer incredible agony, incredible shame, incredible suffering. And he prayed it for disciples that would suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. It was an impossible, impossible mission. In a book I've recommended to you before by Philip Yancey, just entitled Prayer, Philip writes this, as Jesus once prayed for Peter, now he prays for us. In fact, the New Testament's only glimpse of what Jesus is doing right now depicts him at the right hand of God interceding for us. And three years of active ministry, Jesus changed the moral landscape of the planet. Listen, but for nearly 2,000 years, he's used another tactic, prayer. I was reflecting on that statement this week, and when I pray for people, when I pray for my grandson, Josiah, without a miracle, Josiah won't make it. He has a high risk of prenatal cancer. He has a guaranteed risk, according to the doctors, of cancer uh, if he makes it into adulthood with the missing genetic material and damaged genetic material that he has. And yet, Thursday night, during family night, I'm watching him and cooing with him and wanting to be there. I'm so jealous of Becky. She's down there uh, taking care of the kids because tomorrow Dana will be taking him into the hospital for, he has to have blood every three weeks and some other tests he has to have done. But I found myself last night interceding because with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. I sit in Barbara and Rick's house just not long ago, 
And we pray together again. As we pray every week for them. Barb, all things are possible with Christ. If I just had to go on a, a physical diagnosis or political diagnosis or an economic diagnosis, an environmental diagnosis, if that's all I had to go on, I'd probably be like a lot of other people in the world, just slash my wrist and say, what's it all about? What's the use? If we're nothing more than a speck of cosmic energy that is going to cease to exist one day, what's it all about? And yet, what Jesus came to accomplish and what Jesus came to do was to make the impossible possible. None of us will ever, this side of eternity, fully understand the cataclysmic conflict and the absolute, complete, and utter defeat that happened to human beings when human beings chose to sin. There have been many times doctors have told me, they say, you don't know what a normal life is because for you, abnormal is normal. I thought about that this week and went back to what one of my doctors told me at Denver University. I was seeking consultation about moving up here out of the Emory system. And he says, we will work and help you get established there. And I will never forget, he looked at me in the eye and he says, you need to understand, you don't know what normal is. You have no idea what normal is because you've never experienced normal. And remembering that statement while I was praying this week, I got to tell you something. We don't know what normal is. But when we get to heaven, we will know what life was supposed to be all about. A brand new creation there. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? We don't know. We don't know a world without conflict. We don't know a world without pain. We don't know a world without war. We don't know a world without sickness. We don't know a world of peace and joy and intimate communion like we will know. The Bible describes it like this, that when we see him, oh, I hope heaven is real to you. When we see him, then we shall be like him. Oh, I can't wait. And in the meantime, our Lord has left us with an impossible mission and says to you and says to me, if you'll choose to accept it, I will do even greater things through you than what I did when I was upon this planet. Greater things? That's hard to believe. And yet Jesus is not a liar. And so I believe him this morning. Even greater things. Things that will bless. Things that will heal. Things that will encourage. Things that will break yokes and remove burdens. Things that you and I will be so glad for all of eternity we chose to be a part of. So would you stand with me one more time and let's pray together. Jesus... You have a mission for me. You have a mission for everyone here. And you have a sound system that needs a little help.
Thank you, Lord. Amen. You can be seated. That's it. You sit down. <laughs> I'm not upset, but don't be sweating bullets up there. Jesus has a mission for you and me. Oops. Stop it. Sit down, Pastor Rick. It's okay. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus was a man on a mission. And that's exactly what he's praying here in this passage that he wants you and I to understand. You'll never believe what I prayed this morning. I says, Lord, help me to be a little more dignified this morning. And I think he's just telling me, forget about it and just go preach the word. I literally prayed that this morning. Lord, help me to be a little more dignified and not get as excited as I can get sometime. I don't want to jump. I just want to preach. And so I think the Lord has effectively chastened me in front of you. And I think those guys up there have been a part of his mission for my life. But Jesus is in fact is saying, I am a man on a mission. I'm not a Tom Cruise, but I got to thinking about the Blues Brothers, those two little guys that said, you know, we're on a mission from God, and I can't hang off a mountain the way Tom Cruise can. They even told me that Tom Cruise, that scene where he was hanging outside of an airplane, that he really did do that stunt and flying off in an airplane. And I found myself wishing I was that strong and I was that coordinated, but I'm more like the Blues Brothers, you know. I am a man on a mission from God because Jesus has a mission for you and a mission for me. And missions doesn't mean that we're super Christians. Missions doesn't mean that we have to be a missionary. I will be uh, this week uh, praying for, with some missionaries and just uh, trying to encourage them. I have a meeting with some this week and it doesn't mean that we're necessarily called to a foreign field, but missions is a part of what God has for every one of us. As a matter of fact, there are some people that kind of turn their nose up when it comes to this whole idea of missional living. I have a friend in Georgia who is a part of a very highbrow denomination, a denomination that's produced more presidents than any other denomination in the United States. And he told me one time, he says, we don't do missions and we don't do evangelism. We just simply have babies and we teach those babies to grow up to belong a part of our denomination. They've missed something so deeply. And though I love my friend and respect him a lot, and he pastors a very historic church in Georgia that he'll soon be retiring from, and he's a brilliant man, a good man, but that just doesn't believe in missions the way we believe in missions. John 17 and verse 18, Jesus said, in the same way you gave me a mission in the world, I gave them a mission in the world. We were sitting and talking once in Augusta, Georgia, and I was telling him, I said, missions gives people a purpose for living. Missions gives people a reason for living when they learn to share their faith and they get engaged and they get involved. And he said, well, our people would just leave the church if they thought we were telling them to go out and actually tell somebody that they have to give their hearts to Jesus. Or if we actually were telling somebody door to door, and I said, that's not the point. Missions is a part of why we live. Well, what does it mean if we have a mission? Mission means that simply this, that when you have a mission, you're living for something other than yourself. You're not living for your comfort. You're not living for your economic security. You're not living for your personal happiness. You're not living for your joy, but you risk everything you have for the cause of the mission. 
My son Andrew from time to time tells me how much he misses being overseas and being in the fight and talking about being a warrior and how he wishes he was back. And I always remind him, Andrew, your mother and I, your, your wife and your three sons, we're so grateful you're home because this is where you need to be right now, loving your wife, raising your sons. And what you do is very important in supporting and helping others. And Andrew will talk about the people on the mission and what they're doing and how they're serving and the sacrifices that they're making. And I understand his passion and I understand his drive. I also remember the time that I had the, felt the Holy Spirit lead me to pray for him when he was just a little boy, that God would train his hands for war and make him a godly warrior. I had no idea at the time that one day Jesus would raise him up to be a soldier, to be literally a warrior. But a man on a mission or a woman on a mission lays aside their own personal comfort and their own personal security so that they can see the mission accomplished. And whether or not you and I recognize it, we're here because of a lot of people that have been on a mission, not just militarily, but people that have been on a mission to share their faith with our parents or with our grandparents, or perhaps with you, they have been on a mission. It's the reason that the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 12, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this, we do this, we do our mission, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Underline that in your outline. He initiates and perfects our faith. And because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding guarding its shame, and now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Leave that up for me for just a second. First of all, I want you to notice something. God initiates your faith. You didn't choose him. He chose you. Unless the Holy Spirit had quickened us, unless the Holy Spirit had convicted us, we would have never come to know Christ. There is a real error in our world. It's an ancient error. It's an old error. It goes all the way back to the early days of the church called Pelagianism. And Pelagianism is simply a teaching by a man named Pelagius who began to teach the church that we could save ourselves by doing good works and good deeds. And that was proven to be a Hera and a heresy that has dealt was dealt with decisively by the early church, but it is an error that still creeps up in our day. For somehow or another, we think we can save ourselves, and we think we chose God. We need the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us. It is the Holy Spirit that persuades us. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us. What we need more than anything else in this world is a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. Can we give Him a hand? of praise for that this morning. It's the Holy Spirit. The second thing is, he perfects my faith. I don't perfect my faith. It's God at work in me, and I hope you'll see that. Because if I know that he initiates the faith journey, and if I know that he perfects the faith journey in my life, it gives me an either, even greater confidence about the mission that I have before me. Suddenly, the mission doesn't seem quite as impossible because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in me. Suddenly, the mission doesn't seem quite as unattainable because I know who lives in me, and I can do all things, and you can do all things through Christ Jesus which strengthens us. If you believe that, say amen. amen. But notice why Jesus embraced the mission and accepted the mission. He didn't embrace the suffering that led to Calvary. 
He didn't embrace the shame that led to Calvary. He didn't embrace the, the, the humility that led to Calvary because he wanted the suffering, because he wanted the shame. He embraced it because of the joy that was set before him. The scripture is very clear that he endured the cross. He dis disregarded his shame because of the, what does it say on the screen? Because of the joy. Say that word again. Because of the joy. And friends, I extrapolate from that, and I believe it is one of the most solid biblical places you can stand. You will never have joy until you choose to accept the mission that God has called you to do in this life. And that's the reason that we have a class here at Woodland called Discovering My Mission, Class 401, that you take after discovering Woodland, discovering spiritual maturity, discovering my ministry. But then there's a class called Discovering My Mission that I teach. And that particular class is all about your unique call, your unique shape that you've learned about as you've gone through the discipleship classes about your mission and what God wants to do for your life. This morning, I was having my devotions in the room in our house where Becky has the piano. And I was kind of looking out the window as the sun was beginning to rise and was thinking, and the sun was not up yet, but just, you know how the sky begins to change colors. And suddenly, I saw a squirrel running up the tree with stuff all in its mouth. You got to understand something. I really don't like squirrels around the house at all. When we lived in Georgia, we had a squirrel get into our attic, and then his family got in between the floors, between our first floor and our second floor, and I called a neighbor of mine, how can I get the squirrels out? He says, if you'll put mothballs up there, they'll go away. So I shot a whole box of mothballs through our attic and in between the floors of the houses, and if you know anything about mothballs, we couldn't come back into the house because it stunk so bad. It burned our eyes. And so we had to call an exterminator. He had to put on a gas mask to get into our house because it stunk so bad. It's summertime there in Georgia. We had been gone away leading youth camps for a whole summer. We had to pull out our carpets. We had to pull out the padding in the carpet. We had to get rid of linens and everything that was in the house because everything smelled of mothballs. Make a long story short, we got rid of the squirrels, and Becky got new carpet and new sheets and towels, and we were all good again. I cried all the way to the bank, you know, but it was just a difficult time in our lives, all because I didn't know how to properly get rid of squirrels. But I saw this squirrel running up the tree, and my first instinct was, he's building a nest. He's building close to the house. He will eventually be in the house. I got to kill that squirrel. Isn't it amazing how your brain just works so logically so quickly? Then I got to thinking, I can't kill that squirrel with a gun because it's against the law. I can't kill that squirrel with poison because it'll kill the birds or maybe somebody else's animal. And I thought, how am I going to get rid of that squirrel? And then it was just like all of a sudden, I just felt checked by the Holy Spirit. It says, I'm giving you an illustration this morning if you will stop worrying about the squirrel. I will worry about the squirrel after church, but for right now, let me tell you what just came to mind. I watched that squirrel who's been building this nest secretly behind my back that doesn't belong in my backyard, and he was making a cozy little nest, or maybe it was a she-squirrel, I don't know how to tell the difference, but just making a cozy little nest, building it up, 
And I was standing there and I was thinking, that is just what we are so tempted to do. We live to make ourselves cozy. We live to make ourselves comfortable. We live to have the most fun in life we can. We live to build our homes we want. We want our comfort, our happiness. We don't want to suffer, but if we are not willing to suffer and to take on a mission for God, we will never know the joy. Jesus is saying in his prayer, if you want a big life, if you want a real life, if you want a full life. You can't get it by building a cozy little life. You have got to get it by embracing the mission that God has for you. If it was true for Jesus that he endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was on the other side of Calvary, it is true for you and me. The mission that God has for us will bring us joy and fulfillment in the Lord. Can we give him a hand of praise this morning? Hallelujah. My father and I talked many, many times, and I made many recordings of our conversations in the last days of his life, and one of the things we talked about was duty one day, and I looked up the concept of duty, and it was true for my father's generation, it was true for my grandparents' generation, primarily it was true for most of the generations that came before us that founded this great country that we call America. People understood duty. The office of the presidency was supposed to, according to historian John Meacham, in one of his books that I am previewing for him now that uh, will be published later on this year, on the presidency, he said something in, that, in his book that just really struck me as I was reading it this week. And that is that the office of the presidency was to transcend the parties that once you were elected, you were no longer a Whig or you were no longer a Democrat or a Republican. But once you were elected a president, the president was supposed to transcend the party and it was his duty to bring the nation together to agree on a common mission and to agree on a common vision and not divide the nation over party interests, but to bring us together as Americans. And that was considered a president's duty. Theodore Roosevelt, according to me, said he understood the power of the pulpit, the bully pulpit, he called it, because when the president spoke, the nation listened. And brothers and sisters, what I would like you to hear from me this morning, we are not talking about just duty to God and duty to country and duty to family and duty to the church. We are talking about what the purpose of our lives and the purpose of the church really is. And you don't get the purpose out of duty. You get the purpose out of call. You get the purpose out of a love for God. You get the purpose by stripping off every other thing that would hinder you. You get the purpose by making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. Can we give him one more hand of praise this morning? <laughs> Duty led people to sacrifice. Duty led people to die. Duty led people to live for their country. But today the cultural consensus is you be you. The generation that was here in our church when I first came to pastor, I would recommend to our youth pastors, I would recommend that you would read the book, The Me Generation, because the generation that are now young parents, the cultural consensus was, it was all about me. That was when advertising began to change. It costs more, but I deserve it. It was all about fulfillment. It was a radical shift from the generations that preceded us from duty to its, I deserve it. And then we're into a new generation that have rejected the cultural consensus of their parents.
parents, please listen, and now it is, you be you and I'll be me. And it sounds good on the surface, except if we all live little individualistic lives, we're all gonna fly apart. There's no marriage that can stand individualism. There's no family that can stand individualism. There's no successful company or corporation that can stand individualism. And there is no church that can stand individualism. We are the body of Christ. And if one member suffers, we all suffer. And if one member rejoices, we all rejoice. It's the mission of God. It's the mission of God that will cost us everything, but it will bring fulfillment and joy into our lives. It's what we're called to do. It's what our purpose is. Sometimes our purpose looks like a lot like the liberal agenda. We are called to feed the sick, feed the hungry. We are called to heal the sick. We are called to clothe the naked. We are called to do good deeds ministries. We are called to educate those that are uneducated. We are called to do good deeds. But then sometimes our agenda doesn't look very conservative. I mean, very liberal. It looks very conservative because all of a sudden we're called to preach. We're called to teach. We're called to persuade people to become passionate followers of Christ. And sometimes the conservative will say, well, I'm all about the preaching and the teaching, but don't ask me to go out and be involved in a social gospel. And sometimes the liberals will say, well, listen, I'm all about feeding the hungry, but we can't press the claims of the gospel upon anybody. Friends, the church is not pressing the claims upon somebody as though forcing them. We are offering them the real key to life, and the real key to life is Jesus Christ. He is the one that gives us the impetus to heal. He is the one that gives us the impetus to feed the hungry, and he is the one that has called us to proclaim the good news in his name, that God is not angry at this world, but God so loved this world, he sent his only son to die for this world if they would believe in him. Can we give him one more hand of praise this morning? It's why the mission statement of this church is to celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Christ. It's been a long time since we've just said that again. Let's say it together. Celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Christ. One more time. Celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Christ. Celebrate is a way that we say worship with our whole lives. God's love is the good news of Jesus Christ. Persuade is when we go out and we do evangelism. Passionate followers of Christ is discipleship. It's how we disciple people to live enthusiastically. So it just leads me to believe from what Jesus prayed, then my mission and your mission is to persuade the world that Jesus was sent. That Jesus was sent. Of course we're supposed to help people. Of course we're supposed to feed. Just a few weeks ago, I shared with you on how one Sunday morning, this church committed $22,000 to feeding hungry children. And I've kept in touch from time to time with the organization that we support here and my family and I support as well, One Child Matters. And they are so grateful for the support that comes from our congregation. But verse 21 says, first of all, that if we're going to be a people on a mission, we have to be a loving community. Look at verse 21 with me. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. In other words, God wants the same sense of unity and love in the church that He and the Father and the Holy Spirit have for each other. 
As you are in me, Father, I am in you. Now, that's supernatural. I mean, you're looking at God here for just a moment. And then he says this, and this just blows me away. And may they be in us. We are in Christ. That is not just a saying. We are in Christ. It's the reason that the Apostle Paul was so shocked. And please don't be offended because let me just tell you what the Apostle Paul said. And it's, it's almost distasteful for me to read and it's almost distasteful for me to say. But there were some Christians that were going to and living sexually immoral lives. And he says, don't you know that as a Christian that you're joining Christ to a prostitute when you do this? You're, the reality that you're in Christ is so real that you can't help but take Christ with you wherever you go. My mama used to tell me as a teenager, she said, honey, if you go over the speed limit, Jesus gets out of the car. Honey, if you go somewhere you ought not to go, Jesus stays outside. One day I came home from reading the book of 1 Corinthians, and you didn't dare say the word prostitute in front of my mama. So I said, mama, I think you're wrong. I think Jesus stays in the car when I break the speed limit. I think Jesus stays with me if I go someplace I shouldn't go. Read this, mama. And then I stepped way back from her so she couldn't reach me. <laughs> she shut the Bible and she says, I don't think that's what that means at all. <laughs> now listen, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. That is a reality of life that once it grips your heart, it changes how you live and it changes your confidence. That's why the Apostle Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? Somebody say amen this morning. And then he goes, now may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. You see, the mission of a Christian is to get the world to believe not that Jesus was just a good teacher, not that Jesus was just a good moral example, not that Jesus was just a miracle worker, but to believe that God sent Jesus, that God sent his son, that God gave his son, and we go and do this not just by our deeds, but by our words as well. I was sharing Christ with a man who was telling me that he was a part of a religion that's just some sort of kind of new, homemade, made-up religion here in America. And one of the things that he told me, he says, that we believe that when we die, we're just going to become all soul and all spirit. And it was kind of like a hippie told me back in the 70s in Washington Park when he said, you know, when I die, I'm just going to flow into some cosmic river in the sky. And there's always been this sense in some of the countries that I've worked in uh, where you have the Hindus or the Buddhists. And I don't say this with any disrespect. It's just what they teach that, you know, when you live a good enough life, you don't have to keep being rebirthed if you're a Buddhist, uh, uh, excuse me, a Hindu. Do, you don't have to keep being rebirthed. You just kind of go into nirvana. You just kind of go into some cosmic nothingness. And, you know, if you're a, if you're a Buddhist, then you, you hope to obtain that state of nothingness as well. It's why you can walk by, and I've seen them. You can walk by, as I shared with you last week, children sleeping on doorsteps, and they believe it's their fault because in a past life, they have been an evil person. Or you can see children sold into sexual slavery, and they believe it's their fault because of a past life of their bad lives. 
And so somehow or another, you can ignore the plight of the poor. You can ignore the plight of the hungry. It's okay that Americans and Europeans and Chinese Christians and Filipino Christians, and they're there reaching out, but they don't really know. It's not going to change anything. Friends, hear me today. When Jesus saw the poor, he fed them. When Jesus saw the sick, he healed them. When Jesus saw the demonized, he delivered them. When Jesus saw a mother with a dead son that had no way of supporting himself, he raised that dead son from off his funeral pier. I want you to understand the kingdom of God is manifested when the church on its mission not only shares the good news of Jesus Christ, but does the stuff that Jesus called us to do. And by the way, when you let God use you and you do the the stuff he's called you to do, that's when living for Christ really becomes fun. Somebody say amen this morning. Well, give him a hand of praise. Yes. You see, it's why I'm absolutely persuaded that the gospel is the good news. That's what the word means. The gospel is the most optimistic, powerful message in the entire world. It's when you think of the, all the other religions in this world, and again, I don't say that with disrespect, but when you think about all the other religions in the world, the gospel is the most optimistic and most helpful because the gospel acknowledges there's something radically wrong in our world. The gospel acknowledges there's something psychologically wrong, ecologically wrong, spiritually wrong, morally wrong, Death and disease rampant in our world. We get one disease cured and another one pops his head up. You see, as much as I love technology and as grateful as I am for technology, technology will not save this world. The only thing that will save this world is the good news of Jesus Christ because God is the only one that has the cure for sin. And that's not a popular word. As a matter of fact, a psychologist wrote a book a few years ago about it, or been a couple of decades ago now, where he wrote about whatever happened to sin. Why do people want to refuse to acknowledge it? We acknowledge cancer, so we try to get a cure for it. We acknowledge heart disease, so we try to get a cure for it. We acknowledge HIV, we try to get a cure for it. The cure is nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the cure, I think, begins when the world understands God is not angry, but God loves the world even in its sin. Which leads me to the next point I want to make this morning. Because this is probably the most contentious part of what it means to be on a mission. My effectiveness in this world is to be in the world without belonging to it. To be in the world without belonging to it. I was reading a news article this week, and Wall Street Journal carries articles from time to time. They're just very interesting, just about something that's been discovered. And a ship had been discovered, a fishing trawler actually had been discovered, and the only person aboard the fishing trawler was the captain. And when they went down, and the divers went down to check on the ship. What had happened to the ship was that somebody had left the doors on the ship open because it was a fishing trawler. And the smell of the fish, according to the 
to the reporter writing the story was so overwhelming that day that these new inexperienced fishermen, not understanding the power of the sea and the power of waves, they left the doors open to try to get some fresh air into the fishing trawler. And suddenly there was just one of these wild waves that swept over the church and swept over the ship and there was enough water that came in that it caused the ship to sink. There is something to our faith that we have to acknowledge. And that is that God doesn't take us out of the world, but we don't belong to the world either. I've shared with you many times how Leonard Ravenhill said, you can catch a fish out of the, salt, out of the sea that has breathed salt water, born in salt water, drank salt water, but the salt never got into it because when you fillet the fish, you've got to salt it to be able to eat it. There is a way that you can live in this world where the anger, the hostility, the prejudice, the materialism, the individualism, the rebellion, the witchcraft of sin doesn't sweep over your life. It's where you keep your heart's doors open to people, but you close your heart's doors open to the attitudes and the fruit that sin produces. In his prayer, Jesus said this that Pastor Corey read to you a moment ago. I have given them your word and the, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world. Now, stop for just a moment. I don't often experience hatred from people because of my faith in Christ. But I live in a wonderful community. Wednesday night, I shared with our congregation how proud I was of our community, how proud I was. Steve, you were there for the Rotary. As a matter of fact, you emceed the Rotary luncheon, and as I listened to a, a surgeon in our community talk about how he went because of his faith, and he shared and does surgery in war zones in places like Iraq and was in Mosul, and I called Andrew to talk to him because Andrew was very much involved in that battle for Mosul, and we talked about the good work that this, this surgeon, and he and his wife and I were talking over lunch, and his faith and their joy, effervescent joy for the Lord just kind of overwhelmed me, and then Brian Metzger stood up, and they talked about Brian's faith. This is in our community, Brownstown, and Brian was sharing about his faith and why Brian had done what he did. And, and then the owners of Victory Gym got up and they were sharing about how they, they give their services to, to veterans and to soldiers with PTSD and how they work with them. I found myself with tears in my eyes thanking God, thank you that I get to live and pastor in such a wonderful community like this. I don't encounter much hatred because of my faith in Christ. Even as a young Christian, I found people who didn't believe in the Lord affirming me. Even when I worked in mental health, there were psychologists and psychiatrists that would affirm me in my faith. I remember one particular psychiatrist who called me into his office. He said, Denny, I want to help you. He says, I'm not a Christian, but I believe in the message of Jesus Christ. I believe in the destructive power of sin. I believe in what the devil does to destroy people's lives. Pray for me. I am so glad you're working here in this 
community and helping us. I have not encountered this hatred, but there are brothers and sisters around the world that they are encountering hatred because of their love and their testimony for Jesus Christ. Oh, I have been mocked. I have been scorned. I have been ridiculed because I believe that life matters and I believe that the unborn child matters. I have been mocked because I believe that Jesus is the only way. But friends, that is nothing compared to what the disciples and our Lord faced when Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, went to Calvary for you and me. If Christ could do it and the apostles can do it, he has said, I will do even greater things through you. There is no price too big to pay for the cause of Jesus Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise this morning? Mission, mission, it matters. So as the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world, I'm not asking you take them out of the world, but keep them safe from the evil one. Underline that in your outline. Keep them safe from the evil one. I hope you'll forgive me for telling one more story about my son this morning. But it fits so perfectly with this. Where so many nights during those years, Becky and I would be up praying and just feel led of the Lord. We needed to pray. One day Andrew called us and they had been ambushed on three sides. Andrew was sitting on top of a vehicle with a, a gun that he calls a saw and I've seen the pictures of it and and Andrew's faith has always been strong and vibrant. If you've gone through discovering my mission with you, you know there's a personality type that we talk about that's confrontive. And Andrew would argue with a signpost if he thought it was pointing the wrong way. God uses people like that. Some of you are confrontive, but um, it's just who he is. But that night when they were ambushed, <clears throat> they all wore headpieces. I've even heard some of the recordings from those things. And... Andrew was praying, but he was praying in the spirit. I mean, they were coming up out of manhole covers. They were shooting from the top of buildings. They were coming out of buildings, and Andrew was praying, and this team inside of that machine they were riding in thought he was trying to talk to them, and when it was all over, the enemy had been crushed, and not a one of them had been hurt or injured, nothing. And when it was all over with, the, the adrenaline is pumping, and they said, Andrew, Andrew, we couldn't understand a word you were saying. You were screaming at us in Arabic, and you'd know he's a fluent Arabic speaker and writer. And he goes, no, I wasn't. He said, I was praying for us. And they said, well, we couldn't understand what you were saying. And he said, Dad, it dawned on me, I was praying in the Spirit. And he said, so I just took advantage to tell those guys about how to give your life to the Lord and how the Holy Spirit will help you pray in a language you've never learned and you pray according to the will of God. And he says, they looked at me, he says, well, we don't know about all of that, but the next time we're attacked, you do that same thing all over again. <laughs> you see, he protects us from the evil one. And there's not a day that doesn't go by that I thank God for that protecting and that saving power. But even if my son had died in Iraq, even if my son had died in battle, he would still be protected from the evil one because heaven is his home because of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
It's why as his father, this is why as the father of a second son who wants to be a missionary, who is a missionary, as the father of a son who wants to give his life overseas, I want my boys, I want my daughter deeply engaged with this world. I want my boys and my daughter to love this world. I want your children to love this world, but not be in this world. And all that means is we're different, we're vulnerable, we're full of love. Sometimes we get in over our heads, sometimes we're out of control, but always we are in the hands of Almighty God who has said, I will do impossible things through you if you will just trust me. Can we give him one more hand of praise this morning? Now, here's where it gets testy. John 17, 17, make them holy. Make them holy by your truth. I've told you before how I grew up with such a negative concept of holiness, and now holiness is probably the most beautiful doctrine of our faith because it's out of the holiness of God, the love of God proceeds. What we call the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what the holy the holiness of God produces in our lives. Love and joy and peace and kindness and self-control. He says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. You see, holiness leads to freedom of heart. Holiness leads to freedom of spirit. Holiness doesn't look upon people with judgmentalism. Holiness looks upon people with love and understanding. Holiness reaches out to heal, to feed, to clothe, to embrace, to befriend. Holiness says to a wicked tax collector up in a tree, come on down, buddy. I'm going to your house for lunch today. I don't care that you didn't invite me, but I'm going to go have lunch with you today. Holiness takes a woman that was called in the very act of adultery and embraces her, forgives her, and says, go and sin no more, and gives her a brand new life. Holiness takes a woman that's been married five times, and the man she's living with is not her husband now, and she also happens to be a Samaritan, and holiness embraces and loves her and changes her life. Holiness takes a murderer like Saul and converts him and changes him into the apostle Paul. Holiness will accomplish the impossible. Friends, I don't make myself holy. You don't make yourself holy. It is our champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He says, Lord, you make them holy by your word, which is truth. Holiness is not what I do. Holiness is what God does for me this morning. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's the key. And when my heart is free, I don't disdain the world. I don't go, ooh, this world is so polluted. Ooh, this world is so scary. Ooh, this world is so sinful. I don't disdain the world because I'm not better than the world. But when I've been made holy, I go with the love and the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. For the gospel says, God sees you and God sees me through Christ. 
Something I learned early on in my ministry. I'm always going to meet people more capable than I am. I'm always going to meet people richer than I am. I'm always going to meet people more successful than I am. But on the other hand, I'm always going to meet people who are not as capable as I am. I'm always going to meet people who are not as rich as I am. I'm I'm also going to meet people who are not as successful as I am. But it doesn't matter. Because my identity doesn't come from capability or a checking account or from any other thing. My identity is in Jesus Christ. And so whoever I sit with, I sit as a fellow pilgrim in this world. And I'm looking forward to all of us being together in heaven with Christ. And so finally, I want to close with this this morning. My strength is in the Lord. He says in John 17 and verse 20, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through through this message. Now look at that, all who will ever believe. One time somebody said to me who is believes that all of the signs and the wonders and all the miracles, that have all passed away, that those things don't exist. We call them cessationists. I have a missionary friend, Gary Ellison, who wrote a wonderful article on this recently about why he believes that the gifts and the ministries of the Holy Spirit, Gary is a Bible college president in the nation, island nation of Wanatu, but he's a brilliant mind graduate of a great college, Southeastern, in Lakeland, Florida. The best college the Assemblies of God has. I say that with no prejudice whatsoever. (laughs) Gary wrote a great article about why the gifts of the Spirit are at work. I shared that with this friend of mine. And I said, let's go all the way back to John 17 and verse 20. Jesus says this was for all who would ever believe. How many of you believe this morning? Can I see your hands? You believe. You've trusted. Now, if you're not putting up your hands, I think you're not saved. So let me say it again. How many of you believe this morning? All right. You put them down now. It's amazing. We had double the hands go up right there. (laughs) All who will ever believe. There is more power and more strength available to you. Power to love, power to forgive, power to be a healing influence in your neighborhood, your subdivision. You say, Pastor, where does that come from? It doesn't come from me, it doesn't come from the church, but it comes from Christ's authority. All authority and all power in heaven and earth. Jesus said they've been given to him since Calvary to give to you. My strength comes from the absolute reality that I tried to illustrate to you this morning. You and I are in Christ, and Christ is in us. I miss my wife. I'm so glad she's down there. I miss her terribly. It's like part of me is not here. I told her one day, I says, I hope I die first. I'd be a miserable wreck if you died. She goes, that's the most selfish thing you could say. She said, I'd be a miserable wreck if you died. So we told my daddy, it was still, he never got so mad. We hope we died together 
Oh, he got mad at us. Well, this week I wrote in my journal, I am so grateful that Becky and I enjoy something so priceless and so rare, but yet so available to all. We enjoy a Christ-filled marriage. That's why there's joy and there's happiness. That's where our strength comes from. And then finally, my strength comes from Jesus' example. I wish I was as strong as Tom Cruise. I'm trying not to look like the Blues Brothers as I get older and form a pulpit bumper out here in front of me. I'm doing the best I can, but I have a greater model than Cruz and a much greater model than John Belushi. <laughs> I have Jesus Christ. And when I look at Jesus, I see how life can be lived. Get it? I see how life can be lived. And I realize that he lives in me so that I can do that. Jesus also would say that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. I don't know if you remember Tim Goglin. He was a speechwriter for President George W. Bush. When I tell you, you'll remember, but do you remember how he got caught plagiarizing and all the news channels went with the story. It seems like he had plagiarized from several different people. And he came in the next morning expecting to be fired. And he was asked to come to the Oval Office. And President Bush said, Tim, I forgive you. And here's why I forgive you. Because Jesus Christ forgave me of things far worse than what you've done. And many, many others have forgiven me for things that I've done to them. How could I not offer you the same thing that Christ has done for me? And so the President of the United States, because of the grace he had received from Jesus Christ and other people in his life, for a speechwriter who tried to say, no, sir. And the president says, stop. And they put him in a process of reconciliation and restoration until he could be restored to do what God had created him to do. And that was to write. Where does that come from? That comes because like the president, each of us have been given a mission to offer the good news and the grace of Jesus Christ to others. Can you say amen? amen. Our Father in heaven, we love you. And in just a moment, we're going to look at how we can put shoe leather on this, but maybe there's somebody here today that, like Tim Goglin, needs a first chance or a second or third or fourth chance. And I pray that your prayer, that you have a purpose and a reason for their living. I pray that Goglin's example of being forgiven by the president, God would serve 
is just a small illustration that you will give us a brand new start, a do-over, a fresh start. If that's you this morning, would you just simply pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I know I was wrong, but I confess it to you. And I pray for a brand new start in life. Amen. Your heads are still bowed. Let me make one more plea. Coughlin came in expecting to be fired. Coughlin tried to refuse the grace and forgiveness the president was offering. And he said, stop it. I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to somebody in this room, stop it. Let me forgive you. Let me heal you. I will make you holy. And I will give you purpose and mission for life. So reach out to him right now. Just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for being kind. I don't understand it all. But I receive your grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And if you prayed with me this morning on either prayer, would you just lift up your hand and let me know? Say, Pastor, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. God bless you. Well, let's give the Lord a hand of praise for what he's doing in people's lives. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely.